All right, brothers and sisters, let's open our Bibles together today, once again, to the Old Testament prophet of Micah, the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 1. Last week, we began a series on the Old Testament book of Micah, and we covered verse 1 last week. We'll cover the rest of chapter 1 today. Micah, chapter 1. Now, you might look at your bulletin today and see the title of the message, His Judgment Cometh, and wonder why did he use King James English in the title of the sermon. And I'll tell you, I unashamedly ripped that straight off of the movie Shawshank Redemption. And if you haven't seen that movie, you've officially got homework. But I want you to picture this as we begin today. Picture this scene in your mind. You're at home one day. You hear a knock at the door. You open the door to a man you've never seen before in a suit, and he hands you an envelope, and he says, are you so-and-so? And you say, yes, and he says, you've been served, and he walks away. You have been summoned to appear in court, and as you open the envelope, you realize you have been summoned to appear in court to testify in your own defense. You have been charged with a crime, a crime deserving imprisonment, and a fine that you have no way of paying. You must appear in court in two weeks. Those horrible two weeks go by. You get yourself a lawyer. You pick out what clothes you're going to wear, and you show up that day to the courtroom. You go down to the front, and you sit at your appropriate table with your lawyer. And you look over to the left at the other table, and you see the defense attorney, the prosecuting, or the, the prosecuting attorney, rather. You see the prosecutor, but of course the judge at this point is not in the room. The judge hasn't walked in yet. And then you see the bailiff come in, and the bailiff says, All rise. And everyone stands up. But then you see that prosecuting attorney don a robe. And that prosecuting attorney, she walks up to the judge's stand. And she is the judge. You see, in this case against you, the prosecuting attorney and the judge are the same person. And so your lawyer looks over at you with a silent look like, well, we might as well just give up now. That's the scene that we come upon in Micah chapter 1. It is time for God to lay out a case against the Israelites. In many courtroom dramas, you see the attorneys making their opening statements. This is the Lord's opening statement. He's the prosecuting attorney as he makes this statement. But you'll see as we go throughout the book of Micah, he is also the judge. And this is bad news for the Israelites. God lays out his case against them. I want to read it to you starting in verse 2. We covered verse 1 last week. So verse 2 to the end of the chapter. It says, Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split open like wax before the fire. The waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards 
And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable. And it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Beth Laafra. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanon do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Meroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath. The houses of Achzeb shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merishah. The glory of Israel shall come to Ajalam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. This is God denouncing the nation of Israel in his opening statement as we are in this cosmic courtroom, so to speak. You can see it right at the beginning where God says, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention. Let the Lord be a witness against you. And we see the reason for it all in verse 5. In verse 5 it says, All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. When he says the transgression of Jacob there, he does not mean the individual Jacob. But if you remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the three patriarchs of the faith, so to speak, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and his sons, 12 of them, became the 12 tribes of Israel. And so, in a prophet like this, much after Jacob has already lived and died, when it says Jacob, it just means the entire nation. He's representative of the entire nation, just like the name Israel would be. We also see there in verse 5 how it talks about the transgression of Jacob is Samaria. The high place of Judah is Jerusalem. We talked last week about how Micah is prophesying at a time where the kingdom's divided. There's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. These are God's people, but it was divided after Solomon and his evil deeds toward the end of his life. When we talked last week about how Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom. But what he's doing here yet again is he's using these places as representatives, right? The sin of this entire kingdom is represented in their capitals, right? The capital cities are representative of all the people. And so it is not as though all the sin lies with just the capital cities, Samaria and Jerusalem. Did you catch how he listed all of those other places, the other cities and the towns? Everyone is implicated in this. That's the idea. The whole kingdom, the whole nation, everyone is implicated in this. The sin of Israel has spread everywhere like a cancer. 
And so this morning, I want to look at this passage of God's judgment, and I want to pull out just a couple things that I think we need to be aware of here in the 21st century in our culture and our situation here in America. Number one is this. As we read this text, we see a God that is to be feared. We see a God to be feared. Look at verses 3 and 4 with me. In verse 3 it says, Behold, the Lord is coming out of His place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured out down a steep place. God is not simply a nice, grandfatherly figure that pats us on the head and would never offend anyone. That is some people's idea of God today. An old grandfather who's just always nice, giving out candy here and there. Go to him when you need something. He will never offend anyone. Brothers and sisters, if this is our idea from God, it has certainly not come from the Bible. God is love, yes, we read that in 1 John, but we also read in Hebrews 12, God is a consuming fire. A number of Bible scholars have noted that you can look up in any good concordance and see that there are more references in the Bible to God's anger, fury, and wrath than there are to His love and tenderness. And here, God is saying through Micah, my judgment is coming. If you do not repent, my judgment is coming. Micah is saying God is on His way. And He is coming to judge the people. He is coming to inflict His wrath on us. I don't know if this ever happened to you when you were younger, but when I would get in trouble when I was younger, my mom would say, just wait until your father gets home. And that afternoon was awful. The waiting, right? It was scary. But this, this is infinitely More so. He is a God to be feared. Listen to Psalm chapter 18. Just a few verses from that that chapter. It says, Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. And then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of breath from your nostrils. We need to fear this God. There is a proper fear that we should have of God. We should have a proper fear of what God will do to His enemies, those not on His side. It is not as though if you are in Christ, you need to walk around cowering in fear all the time of God striking you down because of one of your sins. No, we are protected in Christ. We are saved from God's wrath, but we are foolish if we do not have a healthy fear of what God will do to his enemies, of what will happen to those who do not repent and turn to Jesus Christ, those who are not made right with God through his Son. 
The idea here is you do not want to be on the wrong side of God. Of all of the beings in the entire world, the one being of whom you do not want to be his enemy is God, the creator of the universe. J.I. Packer once wrote, The Bible labors the point that just as God is good to those who trust him, so he is terrible to those who do not. In Romans 5, we read that for those of us who are Christians, before we gave our life to Christ, we were God's enemies. We were enemies of God. That means anyone out in this world who has not given their life to Jesus, anyone here in this room who has not given their life to Jesus, even if you do not consciously think it of yourself, even if you have not consciously chosen to be, God considers you one of his enemies. And that is a frightening prospect. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus talked about this proper fear we should have of God. And he said, do not fear those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Don't fear them. Fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a proper fear of God that we need to have this morning, even if we're Christians, right? And it is not just reverence. It is not just awe. It's also fear of what God will do in the end to those who continue as his enemies, to those who remain as his enemies. Look at verse 12 with me. In verse 12, it says, The inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord. Disaster has come from the Lord. If the God in your mind cannot bring disaster, if the God in your mind cannot send disease or pestilence or bring about suffering, your God is too small. There is a school of thought in Christianity today, and there are numerous Christians who believe this today, that God would never do anything that would make someone unhappy. God would never do anything. God would never bring anything into your life that would make you unhappy. Anything that comes into your life that is, makes you unhappy is, is from Satan. None of it's from God. God would never do anything to bring about suffering, to bring about pain, God would never do anything to bring about sadness. Brothers and sisters, that is not the picture that we get of God when we read Scripture. That is a picture of God that is created in our own desires for good feelings, in our own desire to avoid anything negative. The God that we get from Scripture, He is love and He is also a consuming fire. We said it last week, Romans eleven twenty two. Paul says, Behold both the kindness and the severity of God. Beware lest you have an idea of God in your mind that is actually no God at all. A God simply created in our own image rather than us created in His. Beware lest your God is too small. And so we see that there is a God to be feared here. But in this text, we also see that it is a time to grieve. A time to grieve. There's a God to be feared and there's a time to grieve. And that time is right then and there for the Israelites. We see through 
Micah's instructions toward them to grieve over their sin, that we must also grieve. Even in 21st century America, we must also grieve. There is a good and proper time to grieve. We're not just talking about for those loved ones that have passed away. We need to grieve for the lost. We need to grieve for those who do not know Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. Now, you'll notice something interesting as it comes to verse 8. If you pay attention, uh, the language is still in the first person. But in verses 2 through 7, it's like God himself is speaking. And then in verse 8, it switches. And it's not God himself speaking anymore. It's Micah speaking in the first person. Micah speaks up. And Micah says, for all of this, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals. The noise that a jackal will make out in the desert in the middle of the night is a a screeching howl. I mean, it is loud and it is disturbing. It is unsettling. And so this lamentation that Micah says he's going to make, this grieving that he's going to do, it is not the the, the personal, I'm trying hard not to make too much noise and I've got tears coming down my face, but but it's, it's a quiet grieving that we tend to do. No, this is like the, the people who used to wail at funerals, and in some, some cultures still do. There, there are cultures in history who have hired professional whalers, and by that I don't mean people who catch whales for a living. They're, they're professional whalers, criers. They cry out, they wail in suffering loudly to express grief, to, to set a tone, to set a mood, so to speak. And Micah says, I'm going to lament like that. I'm going to grieve like that. You see, Micah is God's prophet to take this message of judgment to the people, but he does not rejoice in it. He does not rejoice in it. He is not happy that his people are going to experience God's judgment and God's punishment. And brothers and sisters, we should not be either. We should not be happy that those around us, that those in our community, in our country, perhaps those in our family, are going to experience God's judgment if they do not turn. We can often get a sense of smug satisfaction that everyone who rejects Jesus is going to get what's coming to them. As Christians, sometimes we can get a sense of smug satisfaction in that. But Micah here is an example for us. If we see ourselves as better than the world around us because we are Christians and they are not, then we will have this arrogant superiority And we will have a satisfaction that one day they're going to get what they deserve. But if that's us, we are missing the point. We're missing the point. The biblical gospel shows us that none of us deserve our place in God's family. None of us deserve it. We are no better than the lost. We are saved by grace. We deserve condemnation. We deserve hell And if we get anything else, it's an astounding gift of God's grace that we do not deserve. And if that's where your heart is, then instead of being happy that God's punishment is coming upon unbelievers, it would cause you to weep. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 136. The psalmist, many believe this is David, writes, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Do we feel like that? Do we feel like that when we look out into the world and we see all kinds of people trampling on God's commands, rejoicing in sin, reveling in it, being prideful in it? 
Do we sit there and say, I'm glad God's judgment is coming to them, or do we weep for their souls? Do we weep because God's laws are not followed? Paul says it numerous times in his writings, especially Philippians 3, where he says as he is writing to the Philippians, he says, I'm writing even right now with tears because there are those who do not follow follow the Lord Jesus. He's weeping as he writes because of the, the grief that he feels for those who are lost. So we need to grieve over the lost, but we also, and and probably more to the point of our text, we need to grieve over our sin. Micah is calling the Israelites then, and I believe God is calling us now, to grieve over our sin. Beware the tendency that we all have to think only of others when we read a Bible passage about sin, or we hear a sermon about sin, and immediately all we do is we think about someone else who needs to hear this. Someone else who needs to hear that lesson, rather than applying it to our own hearts. That is also a way to completely miss the point. We can hear a Bible story, we can hear a Bible text, we can hear a sermon about sin, and just immediately apply it to other people. That's a great way to just completely miss the point. Look at verse 5 one more time. Now I want you to notice verse 5 in context. Right? Notice verse 5. As the verse, this is going to sound obvious, but as the verse that comes after verses 2, 3, and 4. Now, picture an Israelite reading this, or let's, let's say more accurately, picture an Israelite hearing the prophecy that Micah is giving to them. And Micah starts out with verse 2. He says, Hear all you peoples. Pay attention, O earth, all that is in it. The Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread upon the places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split open. And the Israelites, the Israelites are all saying, Amen. Amen. God's judgment is coming, and it's coming upon the wicked. Amen. The Israelites up to that point are all saying amen. But then in verse 5, Micah hits them right between the eyes, and he said, the Lord is coming in judgment because of you. It's not because of the world out there. It's because of you. You see, inside all of us, there's a little Pharisee praying in arrogance, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. God, I thank you that I am not like these people out there. You remember the story that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple. And the Pharisee prays arrogantly, lifting up his eyes to God in confidence, saying, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men, especially not like this poor loser of a tax collector here. And Jesus said he completely missed the point. It was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, that went home justified. And inside the heart of every Christian, there's a little Pharisee and a tendency to pray like that Pharisee, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. God is saying, I am coming in judgment, and it starts with my own people. I'm coming in judgment, and it starts with my own people. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Judgment begins with the household of God. It will be those who sat week after week and heard the word week after week who will first be held accountable to what they heard who will first be held accountable to God's standard of holiness and God's standard of faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, to see if our hearts were really where our bodies and our mouths were. 
And so let us resist the urge to say, oh yeah, those, those other people, they're in for it now. Let us resist the urge to say, those other denominations of churches, they're, they're in for it now. Let us resist the urge to say, those other places, we live in Columbia, those other places, places like California and New York, those really, really wicked places, well, they're in for it now. Brothers and sisters, that's completely missing the point. When God gives us a picture of sin in the Bible, we're supposed to let it pierce our own hearts first and foremost. Do not look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own, Jesus said. Who does God look to? Who does God bestow His favor on? We see a wonderful verse in Isaiah chapter 66 where it tells us who. It tells us what kind of person God bestows His favor on. In Isaiah 66 too, God says, but this is the one to whom I will look. Now watch this. Who is it? This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. That's the kind of people that we need to be. That's the kind of person that God wants. He who is humble, contrite in spirit. Contrition means sorrow over your sin and people who tremble at his word. It does not say God is looking for those who have the best track record of obedience. God is looking for those who are the most holy. God is looking for those who sin the least. No, God is looking for those who are humble, those who are contrite over their sin, those who come to his word and tremble at it. When we come to God's word, do we take this thing as seriously as we should? Do we understand the gravity of the words of God? Remember, Jesus said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, blessed are the what? The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit just means spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who come to God and they say, God, I don't have anything of myself to give to you. He's essentially saying, blessed are the people who come like the tax collector, not the people who come like the Pharisee. He goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And most biblical scholars believe he's not just talking about mourning over the sadness of losing a loved one, perhaps. It's mourning over our sin. Blessed are those who are contrite over their sin, who mourn over their sin, for they will be comforted. Notice how Micah in the text tells the people to grieve over their sin. In verse 10, he says, roll yourselves in the dust. In verse 11, pass on your way in nakedness. In verse 16, make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. These were all expressions of mourning and extreme grief. And the idea here is that we need to get serious about our sin. As Christians, as God's people, we need to get serious about our sin. We tend to be flippant with our sin. We laugh at it. We act like it's no big deal. We say everyone else is doing the same things. What's the problem? Yet over and over again in Scripture, we find God telling us that He pays special attention to those who mourn over their sin. The first two Beatitudes, Isaiah 66, 2, it's those who mourn over their sin. It's those who come to God with a vulnerable honesty, saying, God, this is who I am. This is me and all of my, my yuckiness. 
I know my sins. I acknowledge my sins. I'm not acting like I'm more holy than I am. I'm coming to you with everything that I've got, all the baggage, all the dirt, and I need you to cleanse me. That's what God wants. This all shows us that you can be a Christian on the outside and yet not know God. You can be a Christian on the outside. You can believe you're in God's family. You can go to church. You can pray before meals. You can know lots of other Christians. You can live a nice, respectable life in the community and yet not know Jesus at all. Never forget Jesus' example in Matthew chapter 7 of what it will be like on Judgment Day for some who come to him and they say, Jesus, didn't we do all the things that Christians do? We did all of these things in your name. And Jesus looks at them and he says, I never knew you. And so the question that I have for you today is not, have you been baptized? It's a good question, but it's not the question for today. The question is not, do you attend church? The question is not, do you call yourself a Christian? The question is not, have you grown up in a Christian family? The question is, would Jesus say that he knows you? Do you know him? In your heart, not just do you know what it's like to be around Christian stuff, not just do you know the lingo, do you know the the mores, do you know the cultural ways that these people act, do you know him in your heart? Because there will be those at Judgment Day that are firmly expecting to be let in and they will hear those horrible words, I never knew you. It's about something much deeper than appearing that you are holy to all of the people around you? Do you come to God with a humility, with a contrition of spirit? Do you long to know Him, to have Him, to have Jesus, even with all your baggage and with all your sin? That's exactly what He wants. He wants wants us to come to Him as we are. And so finally, I'll end with this. Look at verse 11. This leads us right into... This, this little, little phrase in verse 11 that I, that I didn't even notice until someone in the church pointed it out to me this past week. I didn't even see this until someone else showed it to me. But it says, Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. Now, immediately, when we hear the words nakedness and shame in a Bible context, what does that make you think of? It makes us think of Adam and Eve nakedness and shame. Remember Adam and Eve created naked, right? They didn't have any clothes on at first, and then they sin. They take the fruit, and after they took the fruit, Genesis 3 verse 7 says, the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Just a few verses later, it says they hid from God because they were naked. Now our sin leads to shame before God and before others, does it not? Adam and Eve's did. Ours does too. We all know this. We all know what this feels like, every single one of us. Our sin leads to shame before God and before others. Now, the world's solution to that is to tell you to throw off that shame and to embrace your desires, to boldly do those things that the Bible would call sin. Quit feeling ashamed about them. Embrace them and live like that in boldness and throw off that shame. Say yes to your desires. That's the world's solution to the shame problem. The problem is 
it doesn't actually work. It doesn't actually work. It's like self-medicating with alcohol. You know, somebody, somebody has a, a really hard event happen in their life, let's say. And they're, they're grieving deeply. And instead of dealing with the grief, they self-medicate with alcohol. What's that doing? Well, it's taking what's really there and we're just going to shove it down as far as we can and not face up to it. We're going to distract ourselves. We're going to distract our minds, distract our bodies. That's what the world solution is doing. It's not dealing with the shame. It's saying push it down. Avoid it. Turn away from it. Act like it's not there. Act like it's not supposed to be there. It is for everybody, but just act like it's not. And go, go self-medicate with other things, right? Just put a Band-Aid on that thing right there, even though what you need is a deep surgery. It doesn't deal with the problem. It just hides it. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, and they realized they were naked, what did they do? They tried to cover themselves. They tried to hide. And we all know that, that that's not what God wanted. When God appeared, did God say, I created you without coverings. Get rid of those coverings. You're not supposed to have coverings on. You need to get rid of those coverings. Even though you've sinned, we need to take the coverings away. No clothing for anybody for the rest of our lives. Let's take clothing away because I created you without coverings. Is that what God said? No. What did he do? In Genesis 3, God gave them proper coverings. They tried to cover themselves with leaves, with fig leaves. And God says, no, no, I'm, I'm going to cover you with animal skins. God gave them animal skins. And it shows us that they couldn't cover themselves properly. Only he could do that. You see, only in Christ can our shame be properly taken away. Only in Christ can our sin be properly covered. The shame is real. And in many ways, it's appropriate. But in Christ, all our shame can be taken away because Jesus pays the penalty for our sins. Jesus deals with it head on. And it's only in Jesus that we can know that we don't just have forgiveness of our sins, that our payment has already been made. Our sin has actually been punished. You see, if God were to just say, hey, let's sweep that sin under the rug and act like it never happened, that wouldn't be actually dealing with it either. That's not what he does. He deals with sin fully and completely by punishing his own son, pouring out his wrath on his own son at the cross in our place. And so in Romans 13, 14, Paul says, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself with Christ. Put on Christ. It's the only thing that can cover your nakedness and your shame. It's the only thing that can cover your sin. In fact, verse 9 has a really interesting phrase in it as well. When Micah says, for her wound is incurable. Incurable. See, without Christ, your wound is incurable. Without Christ, the wound of the world, the sickness of the world is incurable. There is no cure for the sickness, the disease of sin, the wound of sin. There is no cure for it except for Christ. Without Christ, it is incurable. But Jesus can cure incurable wounds. We saw that in his life. Jesus reaches out and touches a leper, and what happens? The incurable become cured. Only in Jesus can the incurable wound be healed. 
Only in Jesus can the incurable disease be healed, the disease of sin. And so come to him. Go to him with everything that you've got, with all of the the dirty, filthy sins that you have committed, with all of the things that you are ashamed of, and in many ways properly so. He is the only one who can take that shame and deal with it properly. He is the only one who can take it away. He is the only one who can cure our incurable wound. We're going to spend just a few moments now in prayer. This time that we spend each week after we hear God's word is a time for us to respond to it. We'll have a time of public response, but every single one of us in here, whether we respond publicly or not, need to respond to God on what he just laid on our hearts. And so God just spoke to us. Now it's our time to speak to him. We're going to have a few moments of silent prayer where we can all do that. And then after those few moments of silent prayer and responding to God's word on our hearts, we'll come back. And then we'll have a time of public invitation where people can respond publicly if they need to do so. Let's pray together.